0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm and bright spring morning here in the capital is Andrew Walker. Andrew is the Managing Director of Training Qualifications UK, an award-winning, off-call regulated awarding organisation based in Manchester. Uh, Andrew, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you, Scott. Uh, thank you for uh, reaching out to me and inviting me to take part in this podcast series. I'm really excited about it. Um, I've listened to a few of the uh, episodes mm. already, and there are some really good takeaways in there. Um, but I think what it really does is highlight some of the real struggles that business leaders and, and organizations have faced over the last 12 months. Uh, but what's shone through is, is balancing people, uh, balancing employees, balancing what's best for the business, customers, et cetera. Um, And there's been some really good examples of, in my opinion, exceptional leadership. So yeah, pleasure Mm -hmm. to be here.
0: Exactly right. And we have seen some incredible examples of leadership over the last 14 months and it has been some of the most testing times for business as we've sort of navigated the COVID-19 situation, been in and out of lockdowns and various social restrictions and running, of course, um, an off-call regulated awarding organisation as you do, Andrew. Um, The education sector has, of course, seen a great deal of disruption over the course of the last year. So how has your organisation been affected on the whole by all of this?
1: Yeah, I'd be um, naive to sit here and say, uh, you know, we've not been affected by it. Of course we have. Um, But I think what really helped us uh, during the last 12 months has been our preparation for it. Um, We really started to think about what plans need to be in place around February 20. Um, We have got an office in Hong Kong, and and that really put us in in a good place, a good position, because they put this on our radar uh, probably the end of January. Um, so it was appearing on our risk register that the inevitable might happen, uh, looking at what was happening across Europe and, and various other countries in the world. So we're already starting to have conversations, the uh, directorate and also leadership team about what we will do uh, when the inevitable happens. So by the kind of start of March, we were starting to get people home, um, putting the clinically vulnerable first. Uh, and So by the time lockdown was announced, I think it was the 23rd or 24th of March, we only had a handful of people uh, who had to make that leap back to working at home from, from the office environment.
0: And when it came to sort of adjusting to remote working practices, as it were, did you find you had to sort of adjust your own leadership approach to manage a team from a distance?
1: Absolutely. absolutely. Um, I think you know we were the same as every other organization up and down the country. The first couple of weeks, we were certainly in survival mode, where we were looking at uh, everything we were doing and scrutinizing every penny that was leaving the door. Um, and rank went out the window. There was a real solidarity that we managed to establish across the organization. And I think that stemmed from the culture that we'd managed to develop over uh, the six years in our existence. Um, it certainly helps us in our uh, immediate response to lockdown, um, and it's certainly been our secret weapon to to growth and our bounce back. Um, but in terms of my uh, response and the way I adapted my lead- leadership, um, I think the first thing I did um, was I set out some core principles. I set out some principles that I felt um, would help uh, provide some clarity to to everyone in the organisation and our customers. In a sector, in an area, and in a time when clarity wasn't really at the forefront, um, and I think that that came from my mind wandering back to uh, a time when I was privileged enough to be in the company of uh, Alistair Campbell. Um, uh, I was listening to a, a, a speech he was giving, uh, a workshop he was delivering, and he often refers to uh, making good from bad. And it was almost like I felt obliged and inspired to flip our mentality from just surviving to actually thriving. Um, and that helped the, the mindset early on. So the, the kind of three principles that, that I put in place, and I put in place across the leadership team and and also myself, I believe could provide some clarity um, where there was a, a real lack of clarity. And those, those three principles were um, firstly to protect the people, so protecting everyone who works for us, um, and their families so an example of that will be getting the most vulnerable home first before lockdown arrived and moving on to people who used public transport but i think above and beyond that it was it was speaking to people and leading uh, with an element of empathy uh, and understanding that you know what we were going through was something that we've we've never been through before and um, and hopefully something we won't go go through again so the first principle we put in place across the business was was protecting people and we put that ahead of protecting the business, um, because my my opinion and my my thought on this was if we protect the people um, and look after them, they'll make sure that the business takes care of itself. So we protected the business, secondly, where we changed work patterns. Uh, we adapted our products to meet the needs of our customers in the sector. But I think the key thing that we did, or the key thing I did uh, within the first couple of weeks is we started to plan our bounce back. Um and we actually implemented what, what we called our Tigger group uh, because no one bounces like Tigger bounces. So we, we implemented a Tigger group, and, and as we were getting people home and as uh, the Prime Minister was, was announcing lockdown, I was preparing for how I was going to address the company about what our bounce back was going to be um, because I thought that providing that hope, providing that you know, idea that don't worry, chaps, Uh, we're going to get through this and we're going to have a business at the end of it. I thought giving them that glimmer of hope was something that was, was really important. Um, So balancing surviving and balancing, uh, making sure that we had a business, but also communicating that we're going to be fine. And this is why we're going to be fine because we've adapted, we're resilient. uh, We're a great team. We've got a great culture um, and we can get through this and, and, switchboard
0: everything's been been pretty good yeah it's um it sounds as if what you have done has really really worked over the year the last sort of 14 months and how you sort of kept tabs on well-being and sort of keeping on top of that side of things is also incredibly important and when we talk about sort of the importance of mental health and well-being that rightly so is being significantly amplified by this pandemic. Something that we have been discussing an awful lot within the Leaders Council at the moment as well is making sure that business executives and leaders also look after their own as well because I suppose during a crisis as good as any time it's easy to be sucked into a sort of a survival mode mentality isn't it where you're sort of looking after the business you're looking after everybody else um, you're shouldering the pressure of everybody looking up to you at the top of the company but then you're not taking that time to step back and recharge the batteries as and when you need to as well so that is also something that's incredibly important
1: yeah I agree I agree I'm very fortunate I've got a a fantastic um, support network around me within work and and outside of work Um, and and I I understand the importance of my well-being and and my mental health and and I suppose that stems from uh, my past and, and previous Roles and professions that I've undertaken where, where mental health and resilience and, and really having a, a, a positive mindset um, is it, it, critical. Um, and I think what I always try and do is, is impart that uh, on the organization. Um, f- for example, when, when the second lockdown um, arrived up in, up in Manchester, um, we, we compared it to, to what our experiences were at the first lockdown where uh, when the Prime Minister said you you must work from home if you can, uh, we took that as physically, you know, working from home. If you can physically work from home, you must work from home. I think by the time the second uh, lockdown came around, um, when mental health and wellbeing and and experience and the lessons that we'd learnt from that first lockdown meant that uh, when the Prime Minister said, if you can work from home, you must work from home, we took that can to encompass two other things, not just physically can you work from home, is is your mental health and well being uh, okay for you to work at home, or do you need the, the comfort or the uh, security of an office to come to? And, and then the other factor we we looked at was um, can you uh, can you physically? Is your mental health and well being uh, okay? But also your work, your setup. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of staff that maybe work in shared or live in shared accommodation, so. If there's three or four people around a kitchen table, it might not work. So we we left the office open for those people who who need it, and I adapt I adapt that same principle. So I take care of my mental health. I make sure that I put myself in a in the right frame of mind, and and I do the right things. To look after it. I get plenty of exercise. Um, if I am working from home, and I've, I'm working from home and in the office at the moment, a bit of a split hybrid approach. I'll make sure that I, I do things um that that creates that separation between work and home um to give me that balance
0: Yeah, and that's important, isn't it? Because the hybridised approach to working is probably going to be a huge part of the status quo in the way that we do business going forward, isn't it? Because there are the benefits of working from home for the work-life balance, but it isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach. We have taken the social interaction side of working in a collective office environment for granted, I think, pre-pandemic. And there are also benefits in quite a few industries to getting brains together in one room and sharing ideas face-to-face. As it were, so I suppose the future of the workplace is probably going to include both.
1: Absolutely, I, I think um, the the office is going to become more like a social hub, where um, a, a lot of the the work that people do on a, a on a weekly basis will be done at home, and maybe that collaborative working where they come together and and, the, and people become creative, and some of the best ideas come from when when you're together, face to face in the same room. And um, I think those those types of scenarios will, will happen in the office. But I think uh, you're absolutely right. The, the, the hybrid approach and, and working from home balanced against working in the office um, can only be a good thing. It can only be a good thing for, for productivity, in my opinion, um, and also for, for that mental health and well-being, which we, we know is so important
0: now. And What we also, I think, universally consider very important as we move out of COVID as well is that we learn the lessons of the pandemic as well. And within your organisation, um, what would you say are the key takeaways from the last 14 months, Andrew? What have you sort of learned from this experience of adapting to a whole new reality?
1: Yeah, OK, so really, really good question. Um, a part of our non-negotiable behaviours here at, at UK is is we need to have that willingness to learn. So it's built in so we we've, we've learned crikey, um you know about not one size fits all we we understand that um you know working at home is is just as effective and just as productive as working in the office um, we've we've also learned that um we have got a, a, a fabulous uh, organization with with a great team that um that, that provides uh, great service, uh, service excellence to our customers, um, and we've also got some uh, fabulous products that, that although we've been through a pandemic, um, can help us help us move forward. Um, for example, we've got things like e-certificates, um, where we, uh, prior to the pandemic, people weren't really that interested in e-certificates. But of course, when the pandemic arrived, and we could deliver that certificate to your inbox uh, without. Uh, the need of, of, of postage and packaging—that was a, that was a real, real plus plus point. So we, we've learned a lot about the business. Um, we've learned a, a lot about us as individuals, um, and and it's and it's really stood us in good stead for for our bounce back and, and what's going to happen post COVID.
0: And with regards to what you can see happening in that post COVID world, where ideally do you want your business training qualifications UK to be this time next year, and indeed? What direction do you see your industry going in as we sort of move out of lockdown?
1: Yeah, it, good question. It's it's a real um, mixed bag um, in, in the sector that we operate. We've got some organisations that have, have really um, struggled. We've got some organisations that have thrived. In terms of us and where I see us in the next 12 months, I see us continuing the journey that we're on. Um, we we are adapting to a new way of working. We're adapting to a, a hybrid approach where we've got some fantastic products coming down the track which are going to support the sector in the COVID new world. Um, the, the the sector in general, um, there's lots of uh, turbulent times ahead in terms of the way that qualifications are funded, the way that, um, that they are regulated, the way that apprenticeships are, are assessed. Um, I think where we see ourselves or where we uh, pitch ourselves is we've got that flexibility and, and the way that we're built means that we can adapt and change pretty quickly. That our uh, our picture in 12 months' time um, will be one similar to where we're now with, with with more growth.
0: And let's certainly hope that that growth can certainly come to pass and become a reality over the course of the, year, the next uh, few months because – it has been a very, very difficult 14 months. And I think business and industry at large has shown an incredible amount of resilience and innovation to get to this point. And that's going to hold us in good stead going forward. And I think, Andrew, as we start to get a clearer picture as to exactly what is coming on the horizon, I'd love to have you back on the show with us just to catch up and see how things are getting on because it's been a real eye-opener welcoming you onto the show today. And I'm sure the listeners also share that sentiment.
1: Yeah, well, Thank you very much. And thank you for your time.
0: It's been a pleasure, Andrew. And most importantly also, do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world as well because we're not quite out of the COVID situation yet, but we're almost there.
1: Not yet. And thank you very much. Cheers, Scott.
0: It was a pleasure welcoming Andrew Walker, Managing Director of Training Qualifications UK onto the programme today. And coming up next on the programme, we like to include a diverse range of perspectives on leadership on the Leaders' Council podcast, and therefore Sir Andrew Strauss, former England cricket captain, will be joining us on the show. He'll be looking back at some of the highlights of his career and the importance of robust leadership throughout, and he did have a very, very successful career at that, becoming one of only three England skippers to secured the ashes both at home and away in Australia as well as racking up the second highest number of test wins for an England captain in history. That of course is coming up next.
2: Hello and welcome I'm Jonathan White and today we're joined by Sir Andrew Strauss former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Real pleasure to be here thank you.
2: The pleasure is all of ours you know And you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothik for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname?
3: (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection... was it wasn't Marcus Drasco that you gave me that nickname? Ah. it was actually mark butcher yeah uh, but I think there were a lot of people it was the senior England teams at the mo mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station so um uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players
2: and you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because of course in your first outing uh you went on to score one hundred and twelve. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury?
3: Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along and then... we won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in, in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's
2: such a key point, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so, beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for cricket. Absolutely. Uh, uh, everything you say there
3: is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, Worth broadening out that a bit, it you lets. know. I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet uh there's some people that are you know perhaps very worried about what might go wrong and so you've got to try and Mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them um but yeah there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and you know if and when that happens that that should be a problem for a leadership and if it isn't a problem then you're not doing your job absolutely
2: um and with, with all that in mind actually uh and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question but what advice would you give to others in a similar position leading a team um being looked up to what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it
3: the World Cup final was quite extraordinary.
2: I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so were <laughs> I, <was> I, actually. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you
3: so after she died in december uh, 2018 uh, i came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um 5 to 7000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um but they're on the increase and it's women and we can do better about death there's no doubt about well, it well i think if
2: the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh i know they've got the foundation is going at some events there, so if you could tell us about some of those, those would be.
3: yeah so the uh, i mean we've, we've got a couple of big ones so uh the westminster mile which is uh, a very inclusive if you're thinking about